This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Some of Australia's best race mares, many of them in fold at Champion Stallions, will be offered at this year's English Chairman Sale, which will be conducted with online and telephone bidding on Friday, May the 8th. 55 fillies and mares form the main catalogue, headlined by multiple Group 1 winner in her time, Group 1 Oakley Plate winner Booker, who will be sold unreserved, Group 1 winner and four-time Group 1 place getter Unforgotten, clean up the dam of Doncaster winner Natoya, Infold the Autumn Sun, Group 1 winner Young Star, a daughter of internationally respected stallion High Chaparral. Among the latest wildcard entries is the outstanding race filly Fundamentalist, a daughter of Not a Single Doubt, and Infold to Zoo Star. This filly was Group 1 placed five times. The Chairman's Sale will begin at 3pm on Friday, May 8, online at inglis.com.au with a live broadcast hosted by Caroline Searcy. For those looking for the right mare to create a commercial family that will breed on for generations, this is the sale for you. The English Chairman's Sale, Friday, May 8, online. It was an emotional experience for Stephen Burridge as he stood in the presentation area at Singapore's Kranji Racecourse in March of 2006, a few minutes after the running of the Queen Elizabeth II Cup. As the trainer of the winner, Steve was about to be introduced to Her Majesty and the Duke of Edinburgh, who had accepted the Singapore Turf Club's invitation to be present on the day. The former Victorian jockey turned trainer had come a long way since the days of his apprenticeship to Jim Serkey at Flemington, his first winning ride at Echuca, and his Group 1 win on Mighty Avalanche in the 1984 Oakley Plate. Steve had been training under his own name for only a short time when he won the Group 2 race in the presence of the Queen. He'd worked for three other trainers since arriving in Singapore 12 years earlier, and this followed a busy 25-year career as a jockey, which brought him 1,100 wins in Australia and another 300 in Macau. He's been prominent on the Singapore trainers list every year since gaining his licence, and in 2010, he achieved the distinction of being champion trainer with 92 winners, breaking a long sequence by expatriate New Zealand trainer Laurie Laxon. In the good times, Steve usually has 70 to 80 horses in work. With Singapore in lockdown and racing suspended, his numbers are down to under 40. All horses are still in work, awaiting a resumption of racing, hopefully sometime in May. I've never met Steve Burridge, but I've been aware of his talents and his achievements for many years, and I'm tickled pink to welcome him to the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks very much, John. Thank you. How are you handling the restrictions and all the biosecurity and the change of lifestyle? Yes, yeah, certainly is a change. You know, we, um, we were racing up until about two weeks ago and uh, we usually race twice a week mm. on a Friday night and a Sunday or sometimes a uh, Friday night and a Saturday. Mm. Um, and then all of a sudden they decide to pull the pin and... Um, the last two meetings we had with no crowd here like they are back in Australia. Mm. Um, and we were finding it a little bit different, a little bit different with no crowds there. But um, we, uh, 
as I say, after the second meeting with the no crowds, they decided to pull the pin and, and go into lockdown on the Tuesday. And, yeah, we found it pretty hard. You know, luckily, we are able to work the horses. Um, we're restricted with uh, staff and also uh, the tracks that we can work on. But mm. we are able to work there and um, uh, hopefully – we're talking about maybe coming back to racing on May the 9th or not, or May the 10th. So mm. hopefully we do get back because we need to race. Do you think they will, Steve? Is that a realistic date? Um, it's a little bit hard to say because the last three days we've had our numbers have been up with people getting this virus. And um, unfortunately, it's mostly in the dormitories where mm. the um, – Bangladeshi people are and the workers are and I think because they're on top of each other you know they they're quite crowded uh you know one or two get it and then next minute it es- escalates and mm. uh now they're, they're jumping to the four and five hundreds every day for the last three or four days so mm. hopefully this may settle down because I think in general the the local people and the expats that are here um it's very few and far between but it's just these um the uh, the Bangladesh people and the, you know the workers from uh, Indonesia, they're the ones who have been getting it. Probably, you know, the third world countries, I suppose they are, and you know they don't probably, uh, you know, it's a little bit different to 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 the expats and to the, the mainly the people who are living in Singapore. Mm. You know, their lifestyle. You first went there at the invitation of a French trainer called Claude Charlet in 1994. You'd been riding your share of winners in Macau, but your weight was creeping up. You were getting close to 40 years of age and you felt it was time for a change of direction. Steve, would you ever have imagined you'd still be there in 2020? No, I I didn't think even when I left um, before I I got to Singapore, I left Australia in 89 and I thought I'd probably be, I'd gone to Macau and I thought, geez, you know, probably stay a year as a club jockey there, but mm. I ended up staying for five years and then decided to come here with Claude and, yeah, it's been a been a long road. But, um, you know, I, I, I was glad I made the move because to have gone back to Australia, um, I was never a, you know, a, a, a top jockey. I was always a battling jockey and, and being able to make a living and, and always had my fair, you know, fair share of success, but um, I thought, you know, better off maybe taking on something else because I'd gone into a bit of bloodstock mm. uh, while I was in Macau and um, uh, with and I was also selling a little bit, a few horses to um, the trainer I was coming with to in Singapore, Claude. Mm. So I thought, you know, it just might be the, the right way to go, at, you know, especially at the age I, I was, you know. Mm. Had you been a bigger bloke, there's every chance you would have made your presence felt as a footballer. Now, I have it on very good authority that when you were 13 or 14, you came under the scrutiny of talent scouts from the Essendon Club, and you were pretty passionate about the game back then. Yeah, I uh, I wasn't into horses at all, you know, at that stage, but um, I loved the footy, and I always was able to sort of kick the ball all right. So, um, but I got to the under-13s, and, you know, I was still pretty small and I was starting to sort of get knocked around a bit. So I <laughs> I, uh, I, I thought this isn't going to be my caper here, I don't think. So, no, um, no. yeah, I graduated from there and got into the horses a bit. Well, the racing genes came from your dad, Harold Burridge. 
who'd been a fairly successful jumps jockey. Now, what are your earliest memories of Dad? Did you watch him ride as a kid? No, no, no. He, he well finished um, his riding career when uh, when I was growing up, and uh, he mm. rode over the jumps. You know, he, he got pretty heavy, and that's why he really didn't want me to get involved in racing. I, I don't mm. think because uh, back in my days, when I well his days and my days, you know, when you were an apprentice jockey, you had to start when you were fifteen years old, so mm. you more or less had no education uh, to, to any degree. So. Mm. Leaving school at that stage, you know, you um, you know, you get too heavy. You got nothing really to fall back on. So he he never enticed me to get into the horses. So mm. uh, uh, so I didn't remember only just photos. I used to see him uh, winning races and that. You know, I, mm. I I've always had those photos at home. But uh, no, I didn't really know him as a rider. Mm. Um, and as I said, that's why he didn't never push for me to sort of get involved. Yeah. Well, he didn't win any Grand Nationals, he didn't win the AV Hiskins, but he did ride winners over the jumps on the Metropolitan Tracks. Yes. When it was obvious that you were not going to grow much, you sought an apprenticeship with Jim Serkey at Flemington. Now, Steve, this was the era where apprentices got half a day off every fortnight and a clip under the ear if they put one step out of line. Was Jim a tough boss? Yeah, I must say he, he was a pretty tough boss. You know, he, um, he he was good in a lot of ways. He taught you right from wrong, but he he was a pretty tough boss. You know, and uh, uh, you know he used to he, he trained at Plymington. That's where I was apprenticed. But he used to travel up to to Nilliquin and Berrigan and Geraldry and all those places um, with his horses. They weren't up to the city standard at that particular stage, and um, mm. you know he had a couple that would sort of run in town. But the majority of the the time, he'd be travelling up north mm. of Victoria to um, to be able to place his horses where to win. So he'd take off, you know, early in the week on a Wednesday or Thursday, and then uh, when I did get my license, I used to go up there. Mum and Dad used to take me up to uh, to ride at those meetings up there. Mm. Um, north of the river, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Well, Jim's most notable achievement came long after your apprenticeship when he pulled off one of racing's greatest ever upsets. He produced a horse called Dandy Andy at 125 to 1 to beat Vaux Rogue in the 1988 Australian Cup. And at that time, Vaux Rogue was absolutely flying. He'd won five straight Including two Group Ones, it was a massive shock. Yes, he um, he, he was a, a very good horse, Andy Andy, and I, you know, and there again, Jim, he he sort of took him everywhere where he could win too. He, I think he went to Queensland. He went, I don't know whether he went to Sydney. I know he went to Queensland with him, but no, he was a very good horse. But that's that was Jim Serkin. He he have subtle will travel, so uh, he, he'd go where they could win and. It was lovely to see him get a, a horse good enough to be able to sort of win those better races. For mm. sure. Well, Jim provided your first winner, and that was on a horse called Lucrative Lad. Actually, you rode him, your very first ride in a race was on Lucrative Lad, and you were beaten on that occasion, but it wasn't long after uh, when he was able to win. Now, Steve, you can clear up a, a mystery here. Moama was the track just across the Murray River from Echuca, uh, I didn't even yes. know there was a race course at Moama. Yes, I used to race there. You know, be, you know, in those days, they 
you know, it was a bit of a circuit up there, Echuca, Moama, Chirildri, uh, Berrigan, and, and that. And yeah, it was a, um, it, they used to race the, the, the reverse way like they do in Sydney mm. uh, compared to Melbourne. So, um, yeah, you've got a bit of, uh, it, to sort of have your first ride there in an 800-metre race, it, the race was over before you realised, you know. I, I think I ran second on him on that horse that day. And, um, but, mm. look, I, I can't remem- remember much about the race other than going to the barrier and um, trying to pull him up after the race. It was over and done with before you could say, you know, <laughs> could think about it, really. But he provided you with your first win across the river at Echuca not long after. Yeah, I rode him in a sixteen hundred metre race, I think it was, and um and he won. I think I think the horse actually Jim had a lot of apprentices and I think there was about four apprentices that all won their first race or had their first ride on him. So he was a very, very mm. good horse for, for kids to learn to ride on, you know. So mm. I was very happy to be able to get my first winner on him and um, and uh, get going. Do you remember your first Metropolitan win that was at Caulfield on a horse called Ziminis? Yes, uh, Kevin Esmond had the horse. He was also a trainer up at Echuca. So I sort of, because I was riding around the area um, and I'd had a bit of success at that particular stage, um, Kevin got me to ride a, uh, this mare, uh, Eximnes at Caulfield, and um, I think, you know, she probably had about 50 kilos and I, I claimed the three kilos, well, seven pound off her back in, in the pounds days, and, uh, in those days, and... Um, she won. She won uh, the first ride on it. She won, so it was a great thrill to be able to win that. That's for sure. During your early years as a jockey, you had two very avid fans: your mum Joan and your sister Jan. Now, mum was a five bob punter who'd have something on everything you rode, and occasionally you'd bob up on a long shot. Yeah, she was a very ardent uh, fan of mine. That's for sure. You know. Um, even sort of, she'd go to the races, she'd catch the bus to the races if I sort of couldn't take her or if I <laughs> didn't have my licence to drive at that particular point. And, um, yeah, yeah, she was a very good fan. And um, my sister sort of, she's not a really a punter, but, um, yeah, along the line, she, she always followed me and I was able to put her into a couple of horses I bought later on in life Yeah, uh, as the actual owner, you know. So, yeah, she's been very good to me, my sister. She certainly has. She thought you were the best jockey in the world. And nowadays, she thinks you're the best trainer in the world. I mean, that is loyalty. Yeah, uh, probably questionable too. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Steve, you won a few races in the early 1980s on a useful horse called Lucillo, which was trained by your old mate John Sadler. The part owners of Lucillo were your mum, Joan, and John Sadler's mother, Mary, a remarkable woman who died last year at the age of 110. Astonishing. Yeah, it was, um, it was amazing. I, I, I used to ride the horse previously when a man called Bill Ryan, uh, he used to be a big owner in Melbourne, he had horses with Bob Hoisted. Mm. And I used to go out of a, a Sunday morning and ride track work out at Whittlesey. And um, the man was starting to scale down a little bit with, with owning the horses and he decided to sell them. So... I was fortunate enough to being having ridden the horse in races, and I'd won a couple of races on him. Uh, more or less, got a bit of an offer. Would I have? Would I know anyone that would be interested in buying him? So mm. um, I suggested to Mum 
Um, you know, he'd be a handy horse to buy. So, and I was always good friends with John Sadley. He was best man at my first wedding, and I rode for him later on. And mm. John was sort of keen to get the horse too. So, um, yeah, we bought the horse and had a lot of fun with him. A lot mm. of fun. You've always said Jet Fighter was one of the nicest horses you got to ride. Now, Len Maund had been his regular jockey, but suddenly you took over for nine consecutive races. Uh, you won three on him, a Group 2 and a couple of listed races. You ran second on him in the Group 1 Futurity, three quarters of a length behind Zedative, who was absolutely flying at that time. Were you ever a hope in the Futurity? Yeah, I was actually. I actually I nearly got put through the fence about the about the six hundred meter mark. So um mm. yeah, he got a bit of a check there and, and then he got to the outside and he got home and never gonna beat Zedative. I think Greg Hall rode him that day. I'm mm. not, not I'm not wrong. But uh, yeah, look, uh Zedative was a, a champion of a horse, but um it was great to be able to run second, you know, behind him actually. Steve, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast and we'll be back with you in just a moment. When the championships got underway on April the 4th, nobody was convinced they'd still be going two weeks later. Thanks to the efficiency of the Racing New South Wales biosecurity protocols and the willingness of participants to do the right thing, the great three-day carnival was an outstanding success. Apart from the spine-tingling thunder of hooves and the reverberation of the public address system, there was eerie silence at the most hallowed of Sydney's racetracks. But to those who had a connection to the 10 Group 1 winners, the sense of occasion was just as exhilarating and the thrill just as electric as they would have been in front of 20,000 screaming fans. Best story, the fairy tale win of the cantankerous Natoya in the Doncaster for Wendy Roach and James Innes Jr. What a win by the veteran Etta James as she became the fifth mayor to win the Sydney Cup in 30 years. King's Legacy's Group 1 double vindicated his massive purchase price and Quick Thinker gave yet another Kiwi a win in the Australian Derby. Nature Strip's demolition job on the opposition in the TJ Smith was a real buzz while Colette proved to be the dominant filly in the Oaks. A Dave gave young jockey Tom Marquand another Group 1 in his adopted country by scoring brilliantly in the Queen Elizabeth. Conda Patiro continued on her Group 1 journey in the Coolmore legacy, while Tofane spoiled Pirata's bid to go out on a winning note in the all-aged. Great horses, great horsemen made the 2020 championships very special in these trying times. Special guest is former jockey, successful Singapore trainer, Stephen Burridge. Steve, the Saturday provincial and country meetings outside of Melbourne have always been the domain of those jockeys who can't get enough rides in town to make ends meet. A full book at one of those meetings, with the possibility of a winner here and there, far outweighs two rides in town with no hope. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, um, I used to, you know, being a lightweight, I was always, I could always get a few rides in town and that but um um the saturday meetings i used to always be able to get a full book you know in those days we didn't have managers so you sort of had to scale out and scout around and get your own rides you know and um, not being tied up to any real big stable early on you sort of you, you know you had to sort of make a make a living and yeah that's what i sort of did i decided to sort of go back to the country and ride at the main uh, main tab meeting then 
Mm. And um, I had a good bit of success. You certainly did. Well, many of the big stables sent their lesser lights to those meetings and you would often uh, be found riding for Bart Cummings or Lee Friedman at a provincial Saturday meeting in Victoria. Yes, yes. I used to ride a bit of work for both Lee and Bart. And, um, and so uh, when it came to them sending horses to the races on a Saturday to the Saturday meetings, I, I was always, you know, lucky enough to sort of get the rides on them. And they were always prominent rides and well in the betting. And we did have a lot of luck there um, over the years uh, with winning races uh, on the main Saturday meetings. Well, there was one budding champion you got to ride very early in his career. His name was Superimpose. You won a Seymour Maiden on him at his very first start in a race, and then you ran three seconds at Seymour, Geelong and Colac, and Friedman got you to ride him handy to the lead in those races, Steve. Now, we, we found out subsequently that was the wrong way to ride him. Yeah, I, I think it's like doing training myself now, you know, you, you tend to sort of get your young horses and get them up and going and you, you're educating them and you're always jumping out the, the barrier and giving them a slap up and trying to put them in the box seat, be, you know, up there out of trouble. And um, Lee was exactly the same, you know, he, he, you know, him and his brothers and that, they, they had 60 or 70 in work at Flemington at the time. So you'd be ed- educating the young horses and, um, you know, that was what you do, jump out, give them a slap up and, and get them up there travelling. And um, we, we trialled superimposed, he trialled nicely and, Mm. He went to the race, and I think he was favourite that day, his first start in the race, and he, he won by by a couple of lengths uh, in the maiden at Seymour, and mm. I thought, oh, geez, he's a nice horse, this bloke, and um, we, we didn't expect him ever to be what he was, but um, no. as you say, we found out later on that um, ridden differently, um, which you do find out, you know, sprinters to stayers, that if you, if you do ride them a little bit differently, you can... The horse can turn their form right around, and he, he become a champion. And he was a he was a real champion. Your association with Bart led you to your one and only ride in the W.S. Cox Plate. You rode a three-year-old called Stormy Rex for Bart in 1977. You ran fourth to Family of Man, and you tell me you had no luck whatsoever. Yeah. Um I didn't have much luck that day. The stable mate—I forget the name of the horse. It was the stable mate, but Pat Trotter rode it. I remember that. And, uh, going out the straight, out of the straight uh, uh, in in the race, um, there was a bit of trouble up in front. And next minute, I got skittled by Patrick, mm. Pat Trotter, and um, I went back to second last. I think it was in the race. And uh, anyway, he got home and ran fourth. And, I don't say I would have beat Family and Man, but I should have finished, you know, right on their heels. And um, the form proved right after that because he went on to win a derby, I think. Yeah, he did win Roy the derby. Saddle. Yeah, only a few weeks later with Roy Higgins up. Yeah, that's right. That's true. That's well, for sure. Steve, your loyalty to Bart may have cost you a Group 1. On Caulfield Guineas Day 1986, Bart asked you to go to Werribee to ride four horses for him. You could have ridden a horse called Aberridi in the Group 1 Caulfield Guineas. Aberridi blew from 140 to 1 to 250 to 1 before winning that Guineas with Gary Doherty in the saddle. Firstly, how did you go at Werribee? 
Well, he, I rode four winners there. You know, <laughs> I had a good day until until after the last. Well, not after the last, but coming to the last, and then they had the the Guineas race on from from Caulfield, and I just happened to be in between races and was was watching it. And well, in the run, I was sort of oh well, he's back there. He's you know probably run home and run a nice race, not you know really nice yeah. race, but um, yeah. Uh, because I, I had won two or three races on Aberritty at uh, Sandown yeah. and I think at Flemington. And, mm. you know, the horse did have a good bit of ability and he wasn't actually going to run. And that's why I really took the rides. The guy that um, had him, Steve Watkins, he was an owner-trainer. And I'd spoke to, spoken to him early in the week and he said, look, uh, I don't think I'm going to run this horse. He, he, I'm not 100% happy with him. So riding work for Barton, that, uh, when they asked me to, to go to Werribee, I took the ride. So... Mm. You know that that part of it all worked out great, but then sitting there watching the horse come from last <laughs> and never left the fence, and yeah. it was a great ride by Gary, and um, yeah, he got up to win. I my heart went, you know, went went in my mouth there, you know, for a stride. Yeah. But um, sweet anyway, and sour, sweet and sour. I had a bit yep. of luck, you know. I had a bit of luck, so I can't complain. You well, know? you got something at Werribee. You've had four rides for four winners. Uh, it, the sling might have been a bit light. <laughs> Uh, with Aberritty at yeah, two hundred and fifty to one, probably there. But you know, Bart never gave you anything either. You know, you always had to. Um, <laughs> you got your percentages, and if you got a bit of your own, well, that's that. That was what you got. But no, look, Bart was quite good like that. I mean, he he did support you if you rode work for him. So yeah, I, I could never complain about that. That's for sure. You had a handful of rides in the Melbourne Cup without ever getting into the money, but every Australian jockey aspires to at least take part in the race. You did it four times. You rode Narthania in 1973. You rode Kelmont in 1976. You rode Goodness Knows in 1975 and Jessafina in 1979. What a day for any jockey, regardless of where you finish, just to be a part of it. Oh, that's for sure. You know, I mean, you know, you... They're all lightweight horses that were sort of were the last ones in the cup, but you know it was still just very nice to be able to have rides and to go out there and um, and be you know in the centre of the mounting yard with the, the big crowds that you know that were there in those days. I mean, it was phenomenal, and um, especially the day I I remember the day I rode goodness knows. I think Vanderham won the race, and they called us into the stewards' room, Pat Lawler. Yep. used to always call the jockeys into the stewards' room to give you a bit of a lecture, you know, don't do this and don't do that or you'll get suspended. And mm. We walked in there and there was a big cloud coming over the track and um, um, we're in there probably 10 or 15 minutes and we came back out and when we came out, well, the rain was that heavy. It was just unbelievable. And um, yeah. when we went out to, to get on the horses, we are in about two inches or three inches of, of rain oh, of yeah. water. You in, know, in the birdcage, absolutely. I was there in that the day, cage. Stephen. I called that yeah. Melbourne Cup of 1976. Uh, I've never seen a storm like it, and I have no shadow of doubt in saying any other race but the Melbourne Cup, that meeting would have been off. Oh, for sure. I, I, I actually can't remember seeing the last five furlongs or 1,000 no. metres of the race. It was that, you know, it was that head with pulled all our goggles down and I think you could even see with Bobby Skelton when he came back, he was just, you could, you could see yeah. two little spots where his, um, where his eyes were, but he was mm. just, you know, covered in mud. It was, yeah, it was horrific, the, uh, the rain, but, um, yeah, it was still great to be able to ride in the race and, um, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that riding in the cups, that's for sure. And old Van de Hum with his rather high front leg action ploughed through that track like an outboard motor. Yeah, you're not wrong there, that's for sure, yeah. You were an active jockey in Victoria in a golden era of fellow riders, Roy Higgins, Harry White, Pat Hyland, Gary Willits, many, many others. But like so many Victorian riders of your generation, Higgins was your favourite. Yeah, Roy, I used to sit next to, next to him in the jockey's room at Flemington and um, I don't know why, Just uh, that's where I was positioned. But, you know, just to sort of be beside him and you know, you'd ask him questions and, you know, he, he'd just turn around and, you know, he'd go out of his way to sort of help you and... As you say, like we had such great jockeys in those, those you know times. You know, Mickey Gore and Alan Trevena as well, and yep. Stan Aiken. You know, Stan was in his in his prime then. You know, and um, and then come along Darren Gauchy. You know, and I mean, well, you know what Darren was like. You know, but no, it was was great. But yeah, I I really appreciated Roy. You know, um, you, you know, you could sit down and talk with him, and he'd just come out of his shell and tell you all what you wanted to know or what you wanted to hear and it was all good advice, that's for sure. He never changed, Roy Higgins. At, at any part of his career, he was the same bloke when he pulled the pin as he was when he had his first race ride. Yeah, I, I've heard more than one person say that. Uh, I've never actually heard anyone say a bad word about Roy. No. Um, the whole t- whole time I was riding in, in Melbourne, you know, he was a lovely guy, lovely guy, a great ambassador to racing, you know. Despite a torturous battle with his weight, somehow he lasted 25 years as a jockey. He rode 2,300 winners and he won 11 Melbourne Jockeys Premierships and that will stand as a testimony to the late Roy Higgins as long as racing survives in Australia. Yeah, he used to have a cigar or two too, you know. He loved a cigar. <laughs> he stopped him eating. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're not wrong now. I think he'd go through two or three of them during the day, you know, when he couldn't sort of eat and he'd be sitting back in between in between rides and he'd be pulling out, pulling out a cigar and having it. But um, that was mm. just one thing he could enjoy, a cigar, that's for sure. Well, paying tribute to Roy Higgins is a perfect uh, spot, a perfect point at which to bring down the curtain on segment one of our interview, Steve Burridge. We'll be back very shortly for segment two. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.